Naked Athena captured the imagination of Americans when she staged a full frontal protest before armed federal agents in Portland. More people are going to click on topless protester than they will environmental activist. We created an international buzz, and even if people aren't asking the right questions now, they will be. The reason we chose to have a nude protest was precisely because it's a very strong form of protest, but also we wanted to send a message that as young women, we are reclaiming our bodies. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And Unladies, today I am joined by a very special co-host. And I'm going to ask her to introduce herself the same way I ask our guests to introduce themselves. Could you share who you are, what you do, and why? Of course. Hi, everyone. My name is Annalie Ananye. I am interning for Unladylike this term. I'm currently doing my master's at the University of Cambridge in gender studies, and I'm just a really big fan of the podcast. So I'm here and very excited to talk about gender with you all. Annalie, you have brought us an incredible topic with so many twists and turns and layers that I was not expecting at all. Talk to me about how you got interested in naked protests. Okay, so I'm super, super excited about our guest for this episode. She got me completely interested in naked protests, which is Naminata Diabate, who we're going to get to hear from later. All of her research is completely dedicated to basically naked protests, especially in West Africa, which I'm originally Nigerian. Um, and I took her class my first semester of undergrad. It was a PhD class that I accidentally enrolled in and then just ended up... <laughs> ended up loving it. She was like, well, you know, you're 18. You can just stay, I guess, if you want to. I love that. You're 18. You're old enough <laughs> yeah, to, she was like, to you take can this do it. PhD course. <laughs> and so before we get started, Kristen, I wanted to ask you, have you ever participated in a naked protest or seen one live? No and no. I have never seen one live. And I have never participated in one. And I would say that the closest I've gotten to a, a naked protest was when I studied abroad in college in Barcelona. And the, the beach that my friend and I went to was a topless beach. And it was so chill. I mean, we're talking about, like, topless of all ages. It was a very just, like very normalizing space to see bare breasts. And we looked at each other, my friend and I, and we said, you know what? Let's let's free these nipples. <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and it did feel very liberating. Oh, Unfortunately, so like, you know, this was this was also pre iPhone era. So you know, it, it, it felt like a really a really safe space to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. And I have like some on that is like, I feel like social media has completely 
change the way that people look at naked protests and like how people feel about being nude in public. Um, but yeah, that's so funny. I was thinking about this a lot too when I was thinking about naked protests, just doing research for this episode. I've never participated in one. And I think the closest I've gotten was I went to the Women's March a few times. But in 2017, the LA Women's March, there were quite a few like topless protesters. But I don't think people usually consider that to be a naked protest. But yeah, so naked protests are pretty popular. This week alone, naked protests have taken place in Nigeria at the U.S. Embassy over the results of their 2023 election. Students at the University of Philippines staged anti-hazing naked protests this week after student death, which is really unfortunate due to hazing on their campus. And then yesterday, a man who's now being referred to as the naked cowboy staged a nude protest in New York City in response to Trump's arraignment. So they're oh, happening. Yeah. <laughs> they're happening kind of everywhere. What a patriot. Yeah. <laughs> he was like in full cowboy boots and he was singing songs with his guitar in response to the arraignment. So um, you can see like almost every demographic indicator, political party, race, gender, sexuality, ability. People are getting involved in naked protests. Yeah. And I had no idea that naked protests are probably the oldest, most widespread form of protest, like full stop. They transcend boundaries, cultures, causes. So something that I've been thinking about with naked protests is kind of just this idea of like why they're so popular, why they're so jarring, why people care so much to do them. There's no federal U.S. law supporting or disallowing naked protests or nudity just in general. So all of that is basically like state and local level. In 2019, plaintiffs won the case Free the Nipple Fort Collins versus the city of Fort Collins, which I thought was oh. the coolest case ever, um, where basically the city of Fort Collins created a public nudity ordinance, placing restrictions on women going topless, but there were no like restrictions on men. And then Free the Nipple sued them for violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And the district court upheld that. So they gave free the nipple the injunction on the ordinance. And then the 10th Circuit upheld that, which was basically saying that laws that disproportionately impact women violate the Equal Protection Clause, which I thought was really important. I feel like the crux of naked protests is basically this like kind of uncomfortable feeling with like the overregulation of naked bodies, especially like particular naked bodies. And that's kind of a way that I think people are able to attract both positive and negative attention. Like the media loves a naked protest. They love them. There's pictures of them everywhere. And I think that also kind of just plays into like this idea of a naked body as a way to desexualize it through protest. But then also, I think a lot of people use it as a way to over-sexualize themselves and feel like naked protests are kind of a, a place where they can take and retake their sexuality in a place that they feel like it's kind of been deprived of them. And it's going to be really interesting when we get to your interview with today's guest about the kind of naked protest cultures, because it is kind of hard to just, they aren't a monolith, yeah. you know, but it's going to be interesting to kind of compare and contrast this very 
sort of westernized concept of naked protests and also the way that the media frames it and kind of hyper sensationalizes it. Mm-hmm. Naked protests are definitely not a monolith. And I think that like the causes that people are fighting for just span so many different spaces. In West Africa, there's a lot of response to colonization that kind of prompted it as a political form of protest. But then there's also a lot of cases of naked protests for the liberation, sexual liberation of women. And then you compare that to like environmental justice, pandemic and COVID-19 justice. So I think like almost every kind of space of advocacy that you can think of has some sort of form of naked protest. Yeah. I also understand that you have something of a little game for us to play. Yes. So one thing that I really love about naked protests is I feel like they kind of feed into popular culture and popular culture kind of feeds back into them. And so I have a popular culture nude protest game for you with a few questions. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I'm in the hot seat. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Right. So, which famous rock band staged a naked protest at Lollapalooza in 1993 in protest against music censorship? I got four choices for you. Green Day, Rage Against the Machine, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, or Guns N' Roses? My guess is Red Hot Chili Peppers because I think that's the band where one of the guys likes to put a sock on his penis anyway. Okay, so it's not the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I really Ah! don't put it above them. Truthfully, it seems like the type of thing they would do. Right. But But it's Rage Against the Machine. This was when they just started. They stood on stage for 15 minutes completely naked, and they got a lot of backlash for that. But it worked out for them, I guess. All right, so I'm 0 for 1. Okay, don't worry. (laughs) You're going to get the next one. Which 2022 red carpet event featured a naked protester in solidarity with sexual violence victims in Ukraine? The Cannes Film Festival, the Met Gala, the Academy Awards or Oscars, and the Sundance Film Festival. Was it the Cannes Film Festival? Yes. You got that. Ding, ding, ding. So basically, a naked woman painted her body with the word stop raping us and the Ukraine flag on her body at the protest. Next, testing your Netflix knowledge, which Netflix original series dedicated an entire episode to students participating in a free the nipple protest in response to their school's dress code? And your options are Firefly Lane, You, Outer Banks, and Grand Army. I don't think it would be You. Outer Banks. I don't know. (laughs) It was Grand Army, which they only got one season, so they were never renewed. But it was a really good show when it aired. But basically, (laughs) the character Joey, who was one of their main characters, came to school in a braless white t-shirt that read Free the Nipple, got sent to the principal's office, and then, sorry, this is kind of a spoiler, but it's not that big a spoiler. And then (laughs) her friends, who were all guys, wore the same shirt and basically got her out of trouble. So it's kind of a feminist icon moment. (laughs) Yeah, love some male allyship. Exactly. Okay, last one. 
Which okay. celebrity actress, who is also a child of celebrities or an Epa baby, started a 2014 <laughs> topless protest in response to Instagram's moderation policies? First is Maude Apatow, two is Paris Jackson, three is Scout LaRue Willis, and then four is Zoe Kravitz. It is Scout Willis. Yes, you got that one. <laughs> she started like a huge kind of free the nipple campaign where she walked topless around New York City and tweeted pictures basically saying, and this is the quote, it's legal in New York City, but it's not on Instagram. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, it was like a big moment. 2014, that was right around when Instagram started too. Well, thank you so much for this game. I don't think I get to take home any prizes. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You get the prize of being number one at topless protests trivia. (laughs) Amazing. Um, While I take a moment to relish in my prize, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Unladies, are you tired of reading the same old boring news headlines? Tune into Crooked Media's podcast, Hysteria, for all the unapologetically real and opinionated conversations about the news stories you need to hear. Political commentator and comedy writer Aaron Ryan and former Obama White House Deputy Chief of Staff Alyssa Mastromonaco are leading the charge each week alongside a hilarious and relatable squad of bicoastal women and amazing guests such as Jessica Valenti, Jody Picoult, and Senator Maisie Hirono. With fresh takes on the political and cultural landscape, say goodbye to the male gaze and hello to smart, real, and refreshing content. And don't worry about the tough news. I mean, there is so much tough news to go around. But hysteria brings the laughs and just the right amount of petty to help you power through the rest of the week. Tune in for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So, Anneli, tell us about this incredible guest you have found for us today. Yeah. So, today I am talking to Naminata Diabate, who is an associate professor of comparative literature at Cornell University. She was actually one of my professors, so we got really close during my undergrad career. But she studies mostly gender in sub-Saharan Africa, which I think brings a really great unique twist to kind of the conversation about naked protest. So she talks about it a lot and kind of differentiates between the religious space and context, what she talks about genital cursing a lot in this research, but then also talks about secular naked protest, which is probably something that listeners are a bit more familiar with. And she uses the term naked agency for that. Um, And all of her work is in a book that she released a few years ago called Naked Agency, which has been really successful and won a bunch of awards. So I think she's going to be great for this episode. Okay, quick question, though. What what is genital cursing, aside from an incredible phrase? (laughs) So genital cursing is kind of a more like religious 
kind of experience related to naked protests that I think is specific to the sub-Saharan region, where naked agency, I feel like, is maybe more relatable to our readers. And it's kind of this like reclaiming of your body through this secular practice of naked protests. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Let's get into this incredible interview. Before we get into all my questions, I just have to say, I took Naminata's course my first semester of college, which is probably about (laughs) five years ago now. And that introduced me into the entire world of nude and naked protests. It was an incredible course. And then I think I took like maybe three or four more on naked protests with you. So (laughs) you are beyond an expert in this field. And while you touch on nude and naked protests generally, your research is centered primarily on women, um, specifically sub-Saharan African women. Why is that important? What are the tensions of publishing and teaching about these women and your experiences, especially since you're teaching them in Western institutions? We have to understand that I'm originally from Cote d'Ivoire, which is in West Africa, and the the official language there is French. So I went to the United States in 2004 for my graduate school, and I was taking, you know, lots of classes in women's and gender studies and also Black women's studies. And the images that I kept, you know, coming across were images or questions that most people will be familiar with, such as female genital cutting, rape as weapon of war, marital rape, child marriage. And these critiques were so overwhelming that people couldn't get a different feature, a different picture of what it looked like to be an African woman in South Saharan Africa. So what I was craving for was more of a nuanced understanding of women's lives and their forms of resistance and their forms of protest. How do we get a better understanding of African women without necessarily falling into one trap, like the trap of a single story, the trap of women only being subjugated without the ability of fighting for themselves? This is really the intellectual project that you know, drives my research and teaching. Yeah. And kind of building off that, what was it about naked protests that really captured you? Because this form of protest is so powerful. I thought that the world needed to know more about it. A practice that many of people would not think of as a legitimate form of protest. But actually, when you look at several African societies, the use of nakedness by, you know, by older women is a legitimate form of conflict management. So nakedness being a weapon, a strategy, mm-hmm. a method. Yes. In thinking about nakedness as a weapon, I love the title of your book, which is Naked Agency. And the way that you use different terms throughout your book. So defiant disrobing, naked self-exposure, assaultive nakedness, intentional nudity, mm-hmm. which are all really terms that I don't think we hear in these conversations about naked protests. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of mm-hmm. curious if you could elaborate on that. This is a great question because the term that most people are familiar with will be naked protests or protest mm-hmm. nudity. And I thought that these were terms that could not capture the complexity of stripping naked. When somebody decides to strip naked as a form of conflict management, it is not 
a decision that they made lightly. And once they make it, the effect of disrobing is not one that one can predict. So it is that complexity that I wanted to capture with the term naked agency, which is kind of oxymoronic because typically we think of nakedness as a state of vulnerability, helplessness, and agency as that of will and power and determination and victory. So it is that complexity. The pain that somebody can feel and be driven to strip naked, you know, to really resort to the last weapon and how they are powerful, but also incapable of foreseeing what can happen to the images of the nakedness. And I kind of wanted to build on what you were talking about in that vulnerability state that comes with this naked disrobing, because I think we think of naked protests as something that's so empowering, especially to women. But then also there are these implications that come alongside it as well. Absolutely. When I started the project, it was really to show how African women were powerful by mobilizing their bodies. But as I, as I delve into the research then I realized that it was much more complex than that. Like, for example, women in South Africa, when they protested in 1990 against the demolition of their shops, they stripped naked against the apartheid police. But despite their disrobing, their shops were still demolished. And five years later, some filmmakers went to interview, tried to identify the women and interview them. And it's at that moment that those filmmakers realized how the women were remorseful for stripping mm-hmm. naked. Because, for example, after the protest, they were scathingly criticized and the community members say, how dare you? And some of the women even, you know, said that they were even faced with divorce because their husbands and partners felt that they had demolished the sanctity of their marriage by exposing their sexuality out to the world for the world to see. And that's one point. The second one has to do with how far and fast images travel. For example, if women were to strip naked in Nigeria, which probably happened a week ago, before even the targets of women's protests know that women are protesting, images of the nakedness are already on Twitter. Once your image, the image of your nakedness is out in the world, there is no way of taking it back. So the digital world also adds a layer of complication to nakedness as a form of protest. It's really powerful, but it also has its limits that need to be taken seriously. And... I'm wondering, given this remorse, do you have some sort of definition of what a successful naked protest looks like? (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a hard question. (laughs) No, it's a hard one. And it's one that I have encountered multiple times. I get people asking me, are these protests successful? And it's a question that I just cannot explain Mm. because... I think success depends on the person who defines it. But at the same time, success has to be defined by the women who decide to strip naked. They are the only one 
who can determine whether the act was successful or not. All of us are bystanders. All of us are witnesses. All of us have something to say, but it's going to be very difficult to assess the success or not of the protest. Because, for example, once you strip naked, even if your demands are met, which often is not the case, by the way, once your image is out there, you can never predict what this image can do or not do. So that really complicates the question of success. And that's why I think when social activists think about using nakedness, they really have to think about all of these aspects and not take it lightly. Because if they don't take it lightly, that means that the possibility of their protests to be successful is high. But if they play around with naked protests, every minute you strip naked, it really loses its potency. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious about how you view defiant disrobing and naked protests compared to other protests, Mm -hmm. especially in the fact that you said that the forces that kind of instigate this defiant disrobing are interconnected with forces of patriarchy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we have to look at it from two main perspectives here. When you look at it from the indigenous African context, where nakedness is the privilege of older women. Not all women have the privilege or had the privilege to strip naked. It's really the prerogative as a category of women. And that's why typically naked protests in those days, and even still in some of these communities, it is performed by women of secret societies. Because one, you had to be a reliable woman. So not all women could be asked to participate in the naked protest. You really have to put and put qualified to do that. And that's why it was powerful. But now if we fast forward to the city where you see young men and young women protest, they're not banking on the sanctity or they're not banking on the religious aspect of the nakedness. They are just banking on the social power of nakedness. The fact that a naked uh, adult body in the public sphere is a sense of discomfort, you know, brings about discomfort, brings about a sense of shame to even some of us who are viewing that nakedness. So today, when we think about naked protests, it's not just the weapon of the marginalized is not just the weapon of the weakest of us all. When you look at, for example, in the United States or in Europe, those who protest come from all walks of lives. Like during COVID, for example, you have doctors, you have restaurateurs, you have dentists. They were all stripping naked to protest. That being said, in the African context, Today, as it happens in cities, naked protest is the prevail of, quote unquote, the powerless. Because women's nakedness has the ability to provoke shame, to disrupt the quotidian as we know it. Because when somebody gets naked, you will see cars stopping. So there is immediately a traffic jam. 
and you can have the police try to clothe them. So naked protest has the ability to disrupt everything because religious leaders get involved, the state gets involved, community members get involved, everybody get involved. Yeah. Yeah. I love the word that you use, disrupt, because Mm -hmm. I think like one of the themes throughout your book is kind of this tension or play on naked protest is inherently peaceful. And I was kind of curious on whether or not you could kind of talk about that, (laughs) to what extent you think a protest is nonviolent or peaceful, and whether I think that category that a lot of times people put naked protests into as this like nonviolent form of action. I actually think that's a misnomer. Disrobing in public as a form of conflict management is the most universal form of protest. In any society where clothing is required in public, the removal of clothing is is bound to disrupt the quotidian. So that being said, how does one intention of disrupting the quotidian be considered peaceful? Or what do we understand by peace? Is peace the disruption of the quotidian? Because naked protest cannot do anything if the only thing that it can do is to make us uncomfortable. That's the least that it can do. When people are, you know, chanting, they're dancing, they're occupying spaces, but the nakedness of adult, there is no way we can expect the discomfort that can provoke. How is that peaceful? Or what do we understand peaceful to mean? So that's one point. That's the secular aspect of naked protest. But then when we go to the indigenous African aspect of it, naked protest and the potency of the gesture is predicated on the fact that adult women's bodies house forces that are both evil, but also life producing. And those forces are believed to attack the, you know, the male targets. And these men can experience loss of job, they can experience incurable diseases, they can experience even death because they will be ostracized by the community. And that ostracization is already enough to cause the social death. And that social death can cause the biological death. And why? Why seeing an adult woman's body this powerful? It is because it's akin to incest. And it's one of the major uh, powerful aspects of naked protest. So in that religious context, naked protest is one of the most deadly forces that someone can unleash against you. So how is that peaceful? You know, for example, in the book, I talk about when in 2011, women from Cote d'Ivoire were protesting against uh, the president that was supposed to, to have lost the elections and they stripped naked and were shot at and several women, you know, died. And when the news of that carnage reached the White House, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton issued statements in which they said that peaceful women, unarmed women were protesting and they got shot at. 
and I read closely read those statements. How can these women be unarmed when the women themselves think that they are wielding the most powerful weapons? How can they be unarmed when the military and police forces that shot them thought that the women were armed? So yeah. this is a form of misreading that the event can encounter as it travels through time and space. And there are many reasons why that reading by the White House it uh, came about. We always contextualize nude or naked protests as nonviolent, but the response mm-hmm. to them is pretty violent. So when you're thinking about that in that context, you feel like there has to be violence to elicit this violent response in them. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah. even the emotion that would drive someone mm-hmm. to strip naked. How is that peaceful? How is that nonviolent? So I wanted to shift a little bit to kind of talk about the intersections of naked protest in relation to cinema, literature, social media, other media forms. And clearly nude and naked protests play into popular culture phenomenons. What do you think is the appeal to these protests and why are they captured and emulated so much in media? In the African context, filmmakers refrain from using actual naked women in the documentaries. Even if the event that they're talking about is for naked protest, but they always resort to animation, drawings, illustrations in the documentary, in the films. Mm -hmm. They prevent themselves from actually showing naked women. So, and I found that very interesting. I was thinking, is it because these filmmakers uh, have an ethical response to the nakedness of women and preventing themselves from violating them again. Because one, they didn't get naked willfully in the first place. They were forced to do so. So by featuring the actual nakedness is to violate them again. So there are at least four documentaries on naked protest. But if you look at each and every one of those documentaries, you will not see a naked woman. Because when it gets to that defining moment of nakedness, the filmmaker will resort to other means. Do you think that that's taking away their agency by depicting them without like their bodies and doing that? <laughs> in like this attempt to protect them and their agency? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that gets to the point of, you know, naked agency because it's a complex situation because one by deploying other modes such as illustrations and animation we take away the potency of the gesture so by resorting to animations and drawings of course we are taking away from it we are diluting the potentially powerful nature of the protest so i totally agree with you but by the same token, what is the worst of two evils? Is it to make the point that women are powerful, to highlight the agency, or is it to protect them? The filmmaker has to make a choice. 
But we also have to think about, you know, the audience, because I'm pretty sure these filmmakers don't want their movies to be censored or to have a limited viewership. But when it comes to social media materials, they're as raw as you can imagine. And sometimes I think about the agency of these women. Would they be satisfied by the ways in which the images are being, you know, peddled? Mm. You know, sometimes for useful reason and sometimes not so much. You've covered and studied so many protests. You cite over 500 contemporary protests through your mm-hmm. work. Do you have a feel for which protests catch on or what catches people in the media's attention when it comes to these naked protests? It's so interesting that naked protests are defiant disrobing, which is the most universal form of protest, the most universal that there are only three books in the whole world that talk about it. It just doesn't make any sense that the most enduring, probably the oldest, the most widespread form of protest is not taken up by many scholars. And one reason is that we don't think, oh, no, they're not serious. Oh, no, no, no. I will feel uncomfortable talking about this. So these are some of the reasons, you know, from... Ancient China to what is today's Iraq, from the Hinkas to ancient Greece, you name it. There are so many instances of nakedness. But now there is naked protest fatigue. And also in the African context now, many news agencies are not even covering it because of probably the the ethical implications because to cover these events means that you will have to show their nakedness. And these news agencies are very wary. And I'm pretty sure the backlash against them for showing Black women's body will be very, very fierce. So probably what can catch attention will be the nakedness of a high-profile person. But other than that, for the regular people, no. The news media may not cover it as much as he used to because of just the sheer number of it. There's so much like every day I have a Google Scholar alert and every day at least you will see one naked protest somewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's not taken up. You have one news source here, one news source, and that's about it. But something that will catch the world attention, there are very few. I think the last... Khan Festival, there's this artist that's stripped naked. I, but I don't know how much coverage that received, but that's about it. So. so most of the protests that you write about in your book interact with or choose not to interact with established media journalists and or academics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could comment on maybe how they interact with social media and to mm-hmm. what extent social media may elevate or maybe mm-hmm. further victimize naked protesters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have to demarcate things. Like, for example, for older women in Africa, they will not entertain interacting with the media or any other person for that matter, because there will be a group of women who will strip naked, they will chant, they will curse, 
they will engage in a, you know in a set of rituals and they will leave. They are not interested in communicating their goals, their emotions to anybody. For them, the incantation sometimes in their own languages and the chanting and that's all that they you know that they're interested in. And sometimes when these women are approached by journalists, they rebuff them because this is supposed to be a secret performance. It's a sacred ritual. So they cannot even entertain, interact with other individuals. Now, for younger women, college-educated women, professional women on the continent who engage and they actually choreograph a social media campaign to amplify. Because, for example, if 20 women get naked, like, for example, for 10 minutes, they will post it on various media sites to the point that we will get the scale wrong. We will have the feeling that probably 500 women are protesting. Actually, we have 10 million because it's so <laughs> carefully orchestrated. So, of course, they're using and they're very, very, they're very savvy. They're very savvy. So the, the, the media landscape will be saturated with this. And today you, can, you, you just cannot escape it. Mm-hmm. And, and for example, you remember the naked protest that happened during the Black Lives Matter in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I think she, she got that as naked Athena. This was a protest that lasted for probably 10 minutes. But still today, we are talking about it. Still today, you go to YouTube, you will see videos of Naked Athena. She has given interviews, at least 10 media platforms. So the New York Times to the LA Times, I mean, you name it. So for a protest that lasted 10 minutes by a single woman, you see how social media, because he was on social media the first time he, he occurred, people started videotaping her and they posted it on social media. And it just went viral to the point that established media agencies could not ignore it. So this is the sort of kind of role that we as viewers also play. We play in amplifying the effects of naked protest. A lot of your work talks about naked agency in the context of sub-Saharan Africa, which we talked about before. But I was wondering if you see maybe vocalized differences in naked protests in the Western or states context compared to sub-Saharan Africa, and your idea of naked agency, does that apply to protests outside of sub-Saharan Africa? No, it's not meant to apply solely to the African context. It's not. Because naked protest is so universal that the ways in which we read it, not the meaning, because I need to be clear that it's not the meaning that we assigned that should be universal. The gesture is universal, but the ways in which we read it, the meanings that we apply, those are context-specific. You know, in the United States and in other contexts, naked protests is not a legitimate form of conflict management. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the secular state, you know, it's so interesting, like, before San Francisco used to be a safe haven, so to speak, for naked protesters because it was legal. It was legal to strip naked in San Francisco to protest. But then that changed. The last time that I looked into it, 
There was a county in Wisconsin where naked protest was legalized. So depending on the state, it can be a legal or an illegal form of protest. So these are the various ways in which the state, which may be a secular state, will deal with it. But, you know, in other countries, such as Arab countries, the few men who have protested naked have come under heavier, heavier sanctions. Mm-hmm. There are, I think, two or three women from the Middle East who I think in the mid-2010 stripped naked and the sanctions were heavier. I was wondering if you had any advice for people who consider participating in naked protests and ways to protect themselves from maybe the negative sides that we spoke about or rationalizing with kind of the complex feelings that come around with Mm -hmm. naked protests. No, this is a good question. And this is one that I consider myself because I have found myself in situations where I was just like, what do I have right now? So, uh, you know, I deal with this question myself because now I know the implications, especially with, you know, the presence of, of, you know, of cameras and other technologies of capture. For example, if I were to get naked in a market in Cote d'Ivoire, I know instantly images will travel through the Internet and that can have major implications for my career, for my person, you know, hood and all of that. So I think because it is both powerful and its progressive effect. And because it's so powerful in its deleterious effect, we need to be seriously considering about what we are ready to lose or gain. Like for example, when Naked Afina stripped Naked and then you know it was captured, it's still available everywhere. Now you have t-shirts, you have caps with her logo, Naked Athena, I mean, she has been commercialized in many ways. And how she's reaping the benefits of that commercialization of a body, that's another question that needs to be seen because this is a form of exploitation. So there is also that aspect that one has to take into account. Not only your nakedness could be used in an eroticized way, but it could also be used for commercial purposes over which you may have little little impact or benefits from. So what I'm calling for is to seriously think about the implications and see if it's worth it. It's worth it, then it's worth it. It's funny that, you know, our conversation elicits moments of laughter and, and you know, smiling or smiles. But no, writing this book was very painful because you're dealing with contexts where people were losing everything including their lives. So it was difficult for me to always be rational, to always be objective as we want scholars to be, you know, because this is a scientific project. So a certain level of objectivity is expected from you. But sometimes I had to write chapters multiple times to get to that level where I can have that neutral stand as a scholar as opposed to an activist myself. If there was one myth that you could bust about naked protests, what would that myth be? One that is peaceful. Mm. It's not peaceful. And the second myth is that it's always empowering. Mm. Certainly there is power. Because to get your back against the wall, that is a form of power that one can harness at that moment. 
there is certainly power in stripping naked in anger. But there are also effects that we need to be conscious of. So I would say there's no one myth, but two myths. One that is nonviolent, two that is endlessly empowering. Annalie, I had so much fun listening in on your interview with Naminata. And I'm really curious if any of your perspectives on naked protests have changed or if anything like especially surprised you in the process of researching and talking to Naminata? Well, I think like one thing that I just keep like, it keeps going through my head is like this idea of like naked protest is sexual, but also really asexual at the same time. Mm -hmm. And like the space where like nakedness feels, I think maybe in the Western context, so sexual, but then kind of like asserting this power onto it, I think is so kind of beautiful and incredible. And I feel like Naminata talks about it in such a pretty way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I feel like it has, it's just, it's put a whole different lens on like how I even think about naked protest and the power of it, but also as Naminata explains the gravity of it. Such a fascinating topic though. Thank you so much for bringing it to the show. Um, can you tell folks uh, where to find out more about Naminata and Naked Agency? If you're looking to find Naminata, she is active on Twitter. Her Twitter is Naminata Diabate, and her work is really accessible through Cornell University if you ever look her up. And her book, Naked Agency, which I really recommend you read, um, is on Duke University Press. Okay. And ladies, would love to know your thoughts. Hello at unladylike.co is the email address. You can also send in your voice memos there, or you can DM them to me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. You can follow unladylike on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at unladylikemedia. If you want to support unladylike an independent podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon, patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. For $5 a month or more, you get instant access to nearly 150 bonus episodes, a new bonus episode every month, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, and my undying love and gratitude, patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an unladylike media production executive produced, created, hosted, written, edited, too many things done, I'll just say it, by (laughs) me, Kristen Conger. (laughs) Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. And my incredible intern this past spring has been Annalie Ananye. Thank you so very much. Until next week. What is the Mm. most unladylike thing about you? (laughs) (laughs) you know it's just what people would consider to be my no-nonsense approach (laughs) to academic criticism people would say that's not what a woman does like for example i was giving uh, to one of my colleagues here and i say i don't buy this you have this (laughs) assumption about it that's what i just don't buy it 
And he was just looking at me kind of strange, probably because I'm a black woman, he was a white man, you know, who wrote mm. seven books. I'm like, I just don't <laughs> buy it. <laughs> I love that. I feel like you were just like that in all of my classes. 